please open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. We're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to pick up where we left off from last week, starting in chapter 2, verse 18. Clear this off just a bit here. There we go. And as you're turning to the book of Mark, I want to tell you a story. It's a made-up story in one sense, but I think you will find that the situation is so common that you can recognize it in, in examples you've seen or maybe even your own life. And it's a tragic story. Once upon a time, there was a father who, at one point in his life, discovered the Word of God, and it radically changed his life. Up to that point, he had been living for himself. He loved his sin. He would hurt others to get what was good for him, what he wanted. But then, one day, he saw the beauty of Christ and the glory of God, and he experienced the power of the Spirit, and he was consumed with a sense of God's goodness and love, and and he wanted to honor God in all things. The Word of God had weight to his life, and he changed in remarkable ways. We've seen examples of that even in the life of this church. You understand how that can happen. Well, this father passed his Christian life on to his children. They, too, loved God, and their life was marked by the same devotion as their father. But there is a subtle and almost imperceptible switch. The children did not have the same confidence that they were really true believers as their father did. And they began to look to their own level of devotion and measure it against their fathers to see if they were really good enough, to see if there was enough change in their lives, such that they could have confidence that they were just like their father. Understand how something like that could happen? See, heads are nodding. You get it? Okay. Now, it's important to realize they still believed in the same gospel, and their life looked no different than their fathers on the outside. Outside, no discernible difference. But inside, there was a difference. Whereas the father's changed life was the outflow of his relationship with God, the children began to live a changed life in order to prove that they were children of God. See the difference? So it's a 180-degree turn. And the standard of holiness was also different. The father wanted his life to conform to Scripture in all things, and quite honestly, he didn't care what anybody else thought of him. But the children, they looked primarily to the example of their father. What would dad think of this was something they said often to one another in order to make sure, and in order to make sure that they were living in a way that would please their father, they tried to go beyond what he did. The father gave 10% of his money to the church. They gave 20 And when those children grew up, they had children themselves. Sadly, these children, the third generation now, didn't have any real Christian life. What they had was tradition. For them, the Christian life was about looking to how their father and grandfather lived and trying to follow the example. See why this story is tragic? But you have to understand here, nobody here is trying to be legalistic. They believe in their hearts that they are doing their best to serve God and, and, and others. They're authentic in their desire. They really do want to please God. But in the end, their Christian life is about holding to the traditions of their fathers without any real love for God or joy in Him. And they're miserable 
and secretly they wish they were born into a different family because life would be a lot easier. Understand stories like that? Maybe you're here today as part of that third generation. Maybe you're here today because you're supposed to be, and that's all. Well, friends, my prayer for you is that you will experience something profoundly different. You will experience Jesus. And the way for that to happen is to look at him in the Gospels, and that's what we're doing. Now, I bring this story up, not just for your own amusement, but because those three generations that I just described essentially describe the course that the Pharisees took over about 400 years. I said last week, and I'll say it again, if you really want to understand the Gospels, you've got to understand the Pharisees, who they were and what they did. And I think that that we have this tendency to look at the Pharisees in light of what we know happens at the end and then just assume that they are these really obviously self-righteous people and nobody in their right mind would have wanted to actually associate with them. And that's not true. You see, the Pharisees, they were the popular ones. They had the support of the people. The people liked them. The people looked to them. They were leaders. They were the good guys. The Pharisees came into existence back in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they, they were the ones who found God's word. They knew God. They took his word seriously because they loved him. They preached it faithfully to the people because they cared for the people and wanted to know God. Kind of like that first generation that I talked about earlier. But at some point, we don't know exactly when, a shift began to occur for them. The Pharisees removed the law from the context of a relationship with God. Let me take a minute to explain this. You see, if you read the law, and I encourage you to go back and read the law in the Old Testament uh, this afternoon, you read the law, and it's really clear that the law of God flows out of a relationship with him. So it begins. God says, I am the Lord, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt. And then it says... You shall have no other gods before me. You see how that command to have no other gods before the one true God flows directly out of a relationship with God? If you remove the relational component, you've changed the law into something that it's not. So on the one hand, you know, in one sense, I'm, I'm all for displaying the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are good. They're from God. We should memorize the Ten Commandments. That's good. But, you know, when I walk into a building or something and I see the Ten Commandments just listed out as they are, I think to myself, that's missing the point. Because it's giving just the rules without the context of how God intended them to be, namely the outflow of a relationship with him. And you see the Pharisees missed the point too. The law for them became nothing more than hoops that they must jump through in order to get God to bless them. The law became the code that they had to keep to in order to get good things from God. And because they saw the law as simply restrictions that were added to your life to make it hard, they thought, aha, here's what you do. You add more restrictions and you'll be more pleasing to God. This is important, so so pay attention here. In other words, what they did is they looked to the law and they said, oh, I see what God's doing here. He's adding restrictions to make our lives miserable. Oh, yes, that's what we should do. We should add more restrictions so we'll be more pleasing to him. See, See that logic? That's how they approached the law. 
They went above and beyond the law by adding more things and more things and more things. And they did that because they misunderstood the purpose of the law in the first place. You know what the greatest tragedy in all of that was? Because they misunderstood the law, they misunderstood Jesus. Jesus is the true sense of the law. He's what the law ultimately points to. And if you miss the law, you miss Jesus. Now friends, please don't understand this as simply abstract theology. We've We've gone into deep waters here a little bit theologically, trying to understand the main purpose of the law and make it a distinction between the true purpose of the law and a false purpose of the law. But this is really practical. Because you see, every day we're confronted with commands of God and temptations to break those commands. And here's the standard of holiness and how will I keep it? And it's altogether important that you understand the true sense in which those commands come into your life. It's not because God delights in adding restriction after restriction after restriction to make it hard for you. It's because God is expressing what it means to be in a relationship with him. And most importantly, so that you then are led to Jesus and you get him. Anyway, that was all background. Understand the Pharisees. Understand what they did with the law. Now, let us, let us look at Jesus, how he comes into that gross misunderstanding of the law gross misunderstanding of theology, he comes into that situation and reveals truth. Let's see what he does. Chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Question that's the question they pose to Jesus. Now, little little bit of background that we can learn from this. It's interesting to notice that at this point, the disciples of John and the Pharisees had teamed up together. And what that goes to show is that if you were to, you know, be an outside observer, if you were like coming from Rome and just coming into Jerusalem and, and looking at how things went, you would have probably thought that Jesus and the Pharisees and John's disciples, they're all on the same team. They would have appeared rather close to one another. Uh, you wouldn't have noticed a big difference. But, but that's only if you looked at it from the outside. If you looked at it from the inside, there would have been a big difference. You see, the Pharisees and John's disciples were fasting. The Pharisees knew that the law of God required at least one day a year of fasting. And the Pharisees, Pharisees rightly called people to that day of fasting. But, but remember here, they misunderstood the law. So they thought, oh, if one day is fasting, a year is good, well, how about if we fast twice a week? We'll be even better. They, they interpreted the law as just adding restrictions, so they were fasting. John's disciples, well, fasting would have been part of their life as well. I mean, remember, John came eating locusts and uh, wild honey. Personally, I'd rather fast. <laughs> that just does not sound appetizing. It's the same deal. We're, we're restricting ourselves. But Jesus' disciples didn't fast. In fact, they went with him to parties. They drank wine. They had fun. And people are saying, what's up with that? Why isn't this religious leader leading his disciples to fast? Obviously, fasting is a sign of religious devotion. So Jesus must, must not be really that serious of a teacher if he's not leading people to fast. That's what's behind this question. Notice how he responds. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Here Jesus is using uh, the true purpose of fasting to call the people to recognize who he really is. The true purpose of fasting is to demonstrate your longing for something to come. That's why people fast. John the Baptist understood the purpose of fasting, or at least eating bugs. He came eating bugs and wild honey because he was longing for the Messiah to come. Remember John's message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make a straight path for him. The Messiah is coming. That's what John was saying. Get ready. Prepare. He's coming. And then Jesus shows up. And his message is, the times are fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come. It's at hand. Why? Because he has come. And Jesus is giving them an illustration about this. See, back then, once you got engaged to be married, the groom would go away and prepare a place for them to live. And then everybody would be waiting for the groom to return. And when he returned, well, then the people would eat and drink and be married. They would celebrate because the one who they had been waiting for arrived. Jesus is saying, I've arrived. The one who you're waiting for has arrived. Now is not the time to wait. Now is the time to rejoice. Because what you've been waiting for has come. Or to put it in a more modern sense, could you imagine going to a wedding and not eating anything with, with the people? I mean, you'd essentially be disapproving of the wedding at that point, right? Because you're, you're saying you're unwilling to celebrate with them. If you fast in the presence of Jesus, you're rejecting him and his message because you're saying, you're not the one, I'm still waiting. Jesus has a very different approach to fasting here. Fasting is not something that you're doing to make yourself miserable to get God to give you something. I mean, that's what the Pharisees were thinking. We fast because it earns favor with God. No, Jesus understood fasting differently. He understood fasting as longing for the future Messiah. And when he has arrived, there's no need to fast. It's time to celebrate. Now, You could say, and Jesus heads off an objection here, you could say, okay, well, what about the fasting that's actually prescribed in the Old Testament law? Shouldn't they fast on those days because that's the law? Well, Jesus gives another illustration. He's good with these. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The point there, quite simply, is you can't take something old and put it with something new, or it will rip apart. Everybody back then would know that. The question is, though, what does Jesus mean by this? It's a little cryptic. What Jesus here is saying, that he is the new He's the new wine. He's the new patch. And he is not going to fit with the old system. Fasting was appropriate when they were longing for the Messiah to come. It was appropriate for John's people. And right, at least in some sense, for the Pharisees. It's not appropriate when Jesus has arrived. And do you see how what Jesus is doing here is that he's calling the people to, to recognize who he really is? Do you see how he's calling them to this? Remember, the law was given for a relationship with God. It's not a system of rules meant to restrict the people. It's about living with God in a relationship with Him. And Jesus is God 
come to be with the people. In that sense, he's the perfect fulfillment of the law. He's the end of the law, as Paul says, what the law points to. And those parts of the law that were meant to point to the coming Messiah, well, they don't apply properly to Jesus because he is the coming Messiah. And when Jesus ignores those parts of the law that point to him, like the Sabbath and fasting, as we'll see in a minute, he's not breaking the law. He's fulfilling the law because he's come. See, the Pharisees had great confidence in themselves as experts on the law. Many of them, get this, they memorized the entire thing. Can you imagine that? Memorizing the entire thing. Who wants to start at Genesis 1-1 and work their way through, right? No, they knew it inside and out, but they missed the most important thing about the law, namely the, the relational component. They missed that it was about a relationship with God, and therefore they missed God coming to relate to them in the person of Christ. They missed Christ. Now the rest of this passage repeats this idea over and over because it's so important. I think we don't mind seeing it again. Verse 23 Another incident where Jesus is challenging them. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. So that's what they're doing. They're they're making their way around. And the disciples are picking the grain. Presumably, they're eating it. That's what I think we're, we're supposed to understand here. Now, it was entirely right for them to do this as a way to get food. The Old Testament law allowed for that as a kind of charity. But the Pharisees at some point, or at least some of them, had decided that this counts as work because you're, you're reaping, you're harvesting, and therefore it wasn't allowed on the Sabbath. Why do you think Jesus led his disciples to do this? Well, I mean, they might be hungry, so it's a perfectly legitimate way to get food, but I think it's much more than that. I think Jesus is deliberately trying to provoke them. It's kind of like maybe you've seen this situation play out in your family. Uh, you know, the, the older sister lays out a, a blanket and says, nobody's allowed to step there. And then the younger brother kind of walks by. It doesn't have to go in the blanket, but then just goes, boop. You know, well, why, why does he do that? He does it to provoke a reaction. That's what Jesus' disciples are doing. The Pharisees are right there, so boop. You know, they're, they're, they're provoking them. They're, they're doing it that way. Jesus wants a reaction, and he gets one. Look at verse 24. This is the strongest reaction we've seen yet. And the Pharisees were saying to him, that's a continual action, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? These guys are angry. They're in his face. They're continually saying this to him. How does Jesus respond? Listen to this carefully. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That makes sense? You get why he said that? It's a little perplexing, isn't it? Well, let's, let's start by thinking about what Jesus might have said. Maybe what what you and I might have said if we were there. And and we'll think about why he didn't say that. So what might have been more obvious for him to say is to the Pharisees, look, guys, you've got to be kidding if you think this is work. That's what he could have said. Think about it. All they've done is walk through the grain field, taken the heads of the grain, 
and, and they've, they've eaten it. And the Pharisees call that work because they're, they're reaping something. But in reality, what's the difference between eating it off of their plate at home and eating it in the grain field? Really no discernible difference. And, and no one at the time was suggesting that eating was work. I mean, eating wasn't work. It was eating. You were allowed to eat on the Sabbath. Jesus could have entered into this lawyer-like mode and argued with him. And in fact, some of the Pharisees would have probably agreed because these things were debated all the time. That's what they would do. They would debate the meaning of these laws. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he schools them on their Old Testament. He tells them a story that they would have known well. The story is when David is running for his life from Saul and And David goes to the priest in a time of dire need, and the priest gives him the special bread that was sacred used for their their religious ceremonies and temple worship. The only people normally authorized to eat that bread would have been the priests. But, But the priest gives it to David and his men anyway. Why? Well, the answer is not entirely obvious. But I think here David is in a unique place. He is on a special mission from God, and he is the anointed king. He's also, this is most important, David is a picture of Jesus, who is the prophet, priest, and king. And therefore, he stands in a unique relationship to the law. And that gives him a special right to eat the bread. But what's important to realize, too, is that no Jewish writer at the time was questioning David's right to eat the bread. They recognized that he was on a special mission from God, and that was okay. And Jesus uses this story to make the point. If David had special status, how much more should Jesus have special status? And Jesus' point is that if the regulations to protect the holy could be set aside for David, how much more could these superficial regulations be set aside for the supreme king, the Messiah? Notice what Jesus is saying about himself in this, that he is more important than David. And then in order to make this point, Jesus clarifies the real meaning of the Sabbath. He says man was not, or sorry, man was not created for, for the Sabbath, but Sabbath before, for man. In saying this, Jesus is bringing people back to that true meaning of the law, the relational understanding of the law. Remember, if you miss the law, you miss Jesus. The law is about God's relationship with his people. And, look, and Jesus is saying, look, the Sabbath is made for you. This is pretty obvious if you think about it, because what the Sabbath is, is the day of rest. Rest is good, right? In physical rest, uh, benefits our bodies, right? After a long day, we, we rest. We need to build rest in our schedule. That's good. Spiritual rest benefits our souls. The Sabbath day, as it was intended, was one day out of the week set aside for the people to demonstrate that they did indeed trust in God by resting in the provisions that he had made. Not working, resting in God. Keeping the Sabbath, therefore, it was never intended as a work that you would do to earn favor with God. Rather, the whole point of the Sabbath is that you're not working. You're resting in God. That's why God likes it, because you're resting in him. Imagine this. Imagine a a boss walks onto the factory floor and says to employees, I want you all to not work today, and if you do a really good job not working and resting, I'll pay you time and a half. Which wouldn't make any sense, right? Nobody earns anything by resting. It just doesn't work that way. It's crazy. And thus the Sabbath rest 
was never intended as a way to earn favor with God. It was intended as a way to trust God and rest in the provisions that he has made. That was what the the purpose of the Sabbath rest was. It was about the relationship with God. But the Pharisees, so eager to make restrictions, took that notion of rest and turned it into a work. Here's what you must do. You must keep these minute details of the law. And they missed the point of the law. And they missed Jesus. I think you could summarize the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus this way. The Pharisees thought that the deepest need humans had was to have someone explain God's law to them so that they could meet those requirements and earn favor with God. Sadly, some churches think that's the deepest need too. Jesus recognizes that the human need is so much deeper. He thinks that the deepest need is to rest in the provision that God has made. For God to provide rest, and then we would rest in that. So when Jesus comes to reveal his true identity, he doesn't say, I have come to be the Lord of the law. That's what the Pharisees wanted. That's what they thought they were. He says, I have come to be the Lord of the Sabbath. I have come to be the rest. I have come to give you rest. The disciples, therefore, keep the Sabbath, not by obeying those minute regulations that the the Pharisees have worked out. No, they keep the Sabbath by drawing near to Jesus. Because he is the true rest. They have the Sabbath with them. They don't need to be lectured on how to keep the Sabbath with these these all sorts of applications from the law. No, they, they have the Sabbath there. Jesus is the true Sabbath. And why is he the true Sabbath? Because he's the one who said it is finished. You see, on the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest, when the seventh day was instituted, because God, after he finished his labor, said it is good and rested. God rested that kind of rest that you do when everything is right. Not because you're just so tired you need to take a break. No, God doesn't have any limitations. All was good, and he rested. And then he established that as the seventh day rest. Jesus did the same thing, only his work was not creating the world. His work was dying on the cross to be the perfect substitute for all of God's people. He took the penalty that we deserved. He took the wrath that we deserved. He bore it. He said, it is finished. And then he entered into rest. And he invites us into that rest as well. Friends, what about you? A lot of people think today that Christianity is about trying to keep all the rules to earn your way to God so you can get to heaven. Sure, it's going to be hard, but you can do it. Just work hard enough, put up with enough austerity, and eventually you'll get there. Friends, that's not the Christian message. But even for us who've trusted in the gospel, who've trusted in Christ, think about it. There's all kinds of ways that we can fall back into that way of thinking. Friends, think about how much, how much anxiety in your life is rooted in the fear that you'll be measured and found wanting. You'll be found out and you'll be not good enough. You'll have missed the mark. You'll have failed. How much do we exhaust ourselves by trying to to put on various ways and make sure that we we don't at least appear that way. But friends, the Bible makes us not have to worry about that because it tells us we've all failed. Jesus died on the cross to take away our sin. And He gives us His righteousness to all who believe in Him. So we stand before God complete and secure. That's what it means to rest in Christ. To find Him as our true Sabbath. Well, friends, we have one more episode to see in Jesus' life, and he repeats the same idea, but he builds on it slightly. 
Look there at the beginning of chapter 3. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. These are the Pharisees doing it, by the way. Probably could have guessed that. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So what's going on there? Well, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They're following him around, looking for him to do something. How would you like to be Jesus in that situation, right? And they, Pharisees, have decided that healing was considered work and therefore not allowed on the Sabbath. It's interesting, this this clearly isn't in the Bible, right? Because there's no category for healing on the Sabbath. There's no command, thou shall not heal on the Sabbath, because obviously... People don't have the ability to to go around healing. I mean, that's not something that common people can do. So the Pharisees have to, you know, come up with this special case. Well, what about healing on the Sabbath, right? Um, But, yeah, so they're going to, uh, but if they're going to condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, they've got to recognize that the healings were real, right? They've got to recognize that he legitimately heals the people. And the Pharisees, though, The Pharisees were present for many of the healings, so they they obviously recognized his power. But instead of then bowing down to Jesus because there was somebody in their midst who could actually heal diseases, and therefore this pointed to the fact that that person was the Messiah, no, instead of doing that, they found fault with him for healing on the Sabbath. Friends, that's the evidence of the hardness of their heart that Jesus talks about here. They are so committed to their righteousness and to themselves that they don't recognize Jesus for who he is. And friends, this is a warning for us. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would have that same hardness of heart. We could look at Jesus and see the most overwhelming evidence in the world and reject him because he didn't conform to our expectations, our authority of what the Messiah ought to be. But notice, and this is one of my favorite things about Jesus, He has compassion on them. He is grieved at the hardness of their heart. Did you see that there? It it grieves him. And I think Jesus is doing everything in this story to rescue them. Let me tell you why. Notice what he says to the Pharisees here. Is it lawful to, to do harm or to do good, to save a life or to kill? He asks them that question. And that would seem like a complete non-secular. I mean, it doesn't follow. Why is Jesus here talking about saving a life or killing? Whose life is at stake? The man in the synagogue's life is not at stake, right? The issue is only with his hand. He's not going to die over this. And that's significant, because if he was going to die over this, the Pharisees could not have technically objected that it was working on the Sabbath, because according to the Old Testament law, you you could save somebody's life on the Sabbath. Well, whose life is Jesus talking about saving then? I think he's talking about saving the lives of the Pharisees. You see, they're the ones with the fatal heart condition. Their sickness is really bad. 
And what makes it so bad is that they don't even know they're sick. Jesus is trying to save them. That's why he's provoking reaction after reaction after reaction. So that in the midst of that, he can reveal to them who he truly is. And Jesus doesn't enjoy causing these guys anguish. But he's willing to. He's willing to risk alienating them. He's willing to risk their hostility, their anger. Because he cares for them. And he knows that as they stand, they have no room in their hearts for him. And therefore, they will die in their sins. Here's what you have to understand about Jesus. And some of you aren't going to like it. Jesus loves self-righteous people and proud sinners. He loves really arrogant folks. He really does. He doesn't rejoice when they suffer from their own blindness. No, he grieves when they suffer from their own blindness. And because of that, Jesus is a fitting Savior for us, us proud folk. Praise God, Jesus doesn't say, you have to have this degree of humility, and then you can come to me and I'll interact with you. No, Jesus pursues us in our pride so that in our interactions with him, we will become humble. We will recognize our sickness and find rest in him. But the Pharisees reject this. And notice what they do immediately. Uh, Last verse there. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Now, this is shocking for, for several reasons. But first of all, the Herodians here are the opposite extreme of the Pharisees. I mean, Herodians, Pharisees make, you know, Democrats, Republicans look like they're, you know, only a hair's breadth away. The the Herodians were the Greeks who embraced Greek culture wholesale with all its colorful immorality. The Herodians would have been the prime target of all the Pharisees' moralistic teaching. The Pharisees would have thought, yeah, there was a Herodian in the service today. I hope he was listening. The Herodians were the the bad guys, the, the, the licentious folks. But they team up together to get rid of Jesus. And friends, that teaches us that Jesus is offensive to religious and irreligious. He's offensive to legalism and to licentiousness. The message of Jesus is not, be happy, be accepting of everyone. It doesn't matter how you live. It's okay to enjoy your sin. Nor is his message, work hard, earn your way to God. Yeah, it's going to be hard, but it's worth it in the end. That's not his message. His message is, I am the rest you need. Come to me, have me, leave your sin and your righteousness and follow me. And that's offensive to people who love their sin or who love their righteousness. And now we see why Jesus adds that bit about, is it lawful to do harm and kill on the Sabbath? I mean, who's killing anyone when he says that? Oh, but then the Pharisees go out immediately and plot how to kill him on the Sabbath. These people who were so concerned about Jesus doing a work on the Sabbath have now plotted to kill him on the Sabbath. And the one who they plot to kill is the Lord of the Sabbath. Talk about missing the point of the law. And the deeper irony here is that in destroying Jesus, he heals all those who are his. And how is Jesus able to provide rest when we really have done something wrong before the holy God, when God really is angry at us in our sins, when we are proud folk who would on our own reject Jesus, 
Well, the answer is he dies on the cross in our place. He takes the punishment that we deserve. And you see, friends, there really is only two ways to respond to him. There really are two ways to respond to him. Either like this man with the withered hand, we come to him. Or we want him dead. Either you see Jesus as your Savior, as the one in whom you have rest and your greatest joy, or you see Jesus as the obstacle to your rest and the obstacle to your joy because he calls you to give up your sin and your righteousness. Which is it for you? Let's pray.